This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gemma Blythe. Mal Flanders by Daniel Defoe. Section 22. I must now return to my case. The time of my being transported according to my sentence was near at hand. My governess, who continued my fast friend, had tried to obtain a pardon, but it could not be done unless with an expense too heavy for my purse, considering that to be left naked and empty, unless I had resolved to return to my old trade again, had been worse than my transportation, because there I knew I could live. Here I could not. The good minister stood very hard on another account, to prevent my being transported also. But he was answered, that indeed my life had been given me at his first solicitations, and therefore he ought to ask no more. He was sensibly grieved at my going, because, as he said, he feared I should lose the good impressions which a prospect of death had at first made on me, and which were since increased by his instructions and the pious gentleman was exceedingly concerned about me on that account. On the other hand, I really was not solicitous about it as I was before, but I industriously concealed my reasons for it from the minister, and to the last he did not know but that I went with the utmost reluctance and affliction. It was in the month of February that I was with seven other convicts, as they called us, delivered to a merchant that traded to Virginia on board a ship, riding, as they called it, in Deptford Reach. The officer of the prison delivered us on board, and the master of the vessel gave a discharge for us. We were, for that night, clapped under hatches and kept so close that I thought I should have been suffocated for want of air. And the next morning the ship weighed and fell down the river to a place they called Bugby's Hole, which was done, as they told us, by the agreement of the merchant, that all opportunity of escape should be taken from us. However, when the ship came thither and cast anchor, we were allowed more liberty, and particularly were permitted to come up on the deck, but not up on the quarter-deck, that being kept particularly for the captain and four passengers. When by the noise of the men over my head and the motion of the ship, I perceived that they were under sail, I was at first greatly surprised, fearing we should go away directly, and that our friends would not be admitted to see us any more. But I was easy soon after, when I found they had come to an anchor again, and soon after that we had notice given by some of the men where we were, that the next morning we should have the liberty to come up on deck, and to have our friends come and see us, if we had any. All that night I lay upon the hard boards of the deck, as the passengers did, but we had afterwards the liberty of little cabins for such of us as had any bedding to lay in them, and room to stow any box or trunk for clothes and linen, if we had it, which might well be put in, for some of them had neither shirt nor shift, or a rag of linen or woolen, but what was on their backs, and a farthing of money to help themselves. And yet I did not find, but they fared well enough in the ship, especially the women, who got money from the seamen for washing their clothes, sufficient to purchase any common things that they wanted. When the next morning we had the liberty to come up on the deck, I asked one of the officers of the ship 
whether I might not have the liberty to send a letter on shore, to let my friends know where the ship lay, and to get some necessary things sent to me. This was, it seems, the boatswain, a very civil, courteous sort of man, who told me that I should have that, or any other liberty that I desired, that he could allow me with safety. I told him I desired no other, and he answered that the ship's boat would go up to London the next tide, and he would order my letter to be carried. Accordingly, when the boat went off, the boatswain came to me and told me the boat was going off, and that he went in it himself, and asked me if my letter was ready, so he would take care of it. I had prepared myself, you may be sure, pen, ink, and paper beforehand, and I had gotten a letter ready, directed to my governess, and enclosed another for my fellow prisoner, which, however, I did not let her know was my husband, not to the last. In that to my governess, I let her know where the ship lay, and pressed her earnestly to send me what things I knew she had got ready for me for my voyage. When I gave the boatswain the letter, I gave him a shilling with it, which I told him was for the charge of a messenger or porter, which I entreated him to send with the letter as soon as he came on shore, that if possible I might have an answer brought back by the same hand, and I might know what was become of my things. For, sir, says I, if the ship should go away before I have them on board, I am undone. I took care when I gave him the shilling, to let him see that I had a little better furniture about me than the ordinary prisoners, for he saw that I had a purse, and in it a pretty deal of money, and I found that the very sight of it immediately furnished me with a very different treatment from what I should otherwise have met with in the ship, for though he was very courteous indeed before, in a kind of natural compassion to me, as a woman in distress, yet he was more than ordinarily so afterwards, and procured me to be better treated in the ship than, I say, I might otherwise have been, as shall appear in its place. He very honestly had my letter delivered to my governess's own hand, and brought me back an answer from her in writing, and when he gave me the answer, gave me the shilling again. There, says he, there's your shilling again, do, for I delivered the letter myself. I could not tell what to say, I was so surprised at the thing. But after some pause, I said, Sir, you are too kind. It had been but reasonable that you had paid yourself coach hire then. No, no, says he, I am overpaid. What is the gentlewoman, your sister? No, sir, says I, she is no relation to me. But she is a dear friend, and all the friends I have in the world. Well, says he, there are few such friends in the world. Why, she cried after you like a child. Aye, says I again, she would give a hundred pounds, I believe, to deliver me from this dreadful condition I am in. Would she so, says he, for half the money, I believe, I could put you in a way how to deliver yourself. But this he spoke softly that nobody could hear. Alas, sir, said I, but then that must be such a deliverance as if I should be taken again would cost me my life. Nay, said he, if you were once out of the ship, you must look to yourself afterwards. That I can say nothing to, so we dropped the discourse for that time. In the meantime, my governess, faithful to the last moment, conveyed my letter to the prison to my husband, and got an answer to it, and the next day came down herself to the ship,
bringing me in the first place a sea-bed as they call it and all its furniture such as was convenient but not to let the people think it was extraordinary she brought with her a sea-chest that is a chest such as are made for seamen with all the conveniences in it and filled with everything almost that i could want and in one of the corners of the chest where there was a private drawer was a bank of money this is to say so much of it as i had resolved to carry with me for i ordered a part of my stock to be left behind me to be sent afterwards in such goods as i should want when i came to settle for money in that country is not of much use where all things are bought for tobacco much more is it a great loss to carry it from hence but my case was particular it was by no means proper for me to go thither without money or goods and for a poor convict that was to be sold as soon as i came on shore to carry with me a cargo of goods would be to have notice taken of it and perhaps to have them seized by the public so i took part of my stock with me thus and left the other part with my governess my governess brought me a great many other things but it was not proper for me to look too well provided in the ship at least till i knew what kind of a captain we should have when she came into the ship i thought she would have died indeed her heart sank at the sight of me and at the thoughts of parting with me in that condition and she cried so intolerably i could not for a long time have any talk with her i took that time to read my fellow-prisoner's letter which however greatly perplexed me he told me he was determined to go but found it would be impossible for him to be discharged time enough for going in the same ship and which was more than all he began to question whether they would give him leave to go in what ship he pleased though he did voluntarily transport himself but that they would see him put on board such a ship as they should direct and that he would be charged upon the captain as other convict prisoners were so that he began to be in despair of seeing me till he came to virginia which made him almost desperate seeing that on the other hand if i should not be there if any accident of the sea or of mortality should take me away he should be the most undone creature in the world this was very perplexing and i knew not what course to take i told my governess the story of the boatswain and she was mighty eager for me to treat him but i had no mind to it till i heard whether my husband or fellow-prisoner so she called to him could be at liberty to go with me or no at last i was forced to let her into the whole matter except only that of his being my husband i told her i had made a positive bargain or agreement with him to go if he could get the liberty of going in the same ship and that i found he had money then i read a long lecture to her of what i proposed to do when we came there how we could flaunt settle and in short grow rich without any more adventures and as a great secret i told her that we were to marry as soon as he came on board she soon agreed cheerfully to my going when she heard this and she made it her business from that time to get him out of the prison in time so that he might go in the same ship with me which at last was brought to pass though with great difficulty and not without all the forms of a transported prisoner convict which he really was not yet for he had not been tried and which was of great mortification to him 
as our fate was now determined and we were both on board actually bound to virginia in the despicable quality of transported convicts destined to be sold for slaves i for five years and he under bonds and security not to return to england any more as long as he lived he was very much dejected and cast down the mortification of being brought on board as he was like a prisoner piqued him very much since it was first told him he should transport himself and so that he might go as a gentleman at liberty it is true he was not ordered to be sold when he came there as it were and for that reason he was obliged to pay for his passage to the captain which we were not as to the rest he was as much at a loss as a child what to do with himself or with what he had but by directions our first business was to compare our stock he was very honest with me and told me his stock was pretty good when he came into the prison but the living there as he did in a figure like a gentleman and which was ten times as much the making of friends and soliciting his case had been very expensive and in a word all his stock that had left was a hundred and eight pounds which he had about him all in gold i gave him an account of my stock as faithfully that is to say of what i had taken to carry with me for i was resolved whatever should happen to keep what i had left with my governess in reserve that in case i should die what i had with me was enough to give him and that which was left in my governess's hands would be her own which she had well deserved of me indeed my stock which i had with me was two hundred forty six pounds some odd shillings so that we had three hundred fifty four pounds between us but a worse gotten estate was scarce ever put together to being the world with our greatest misfortune as to our stock was that it was all in money which every one knows is an unprofitable cargo to be carried to the plantations i believe his was really all he had left in the world as he told me it was but i who had between seven hundred and eight hundred pounds in bank when this disaster befell me and who had one of the faithfulest friends in the world to manage it for me considered she was a woman of manner of religious principles had still three hundred pounds left in her hand which i reserved as above besides some very valuable things as particularly two gold watches some small pieces of plate and some rings all stolen goods the plate rings and watches were put in my chest with the money and with this fortune and in the sixty-first year of my age i launched out into a new world as i may call it in the condition as to what appeared only of a poor naked convict ordered to be transported in respite from the gallows my clothes were poor and mean but not ragged or dirty and none knew in the whole ship that i had anything of value about me however as i had a great many very good clothes and linen in abundance which i had ordered to be packed up in two great boxes i had them shipped on board not as my goods but as consigned to my real name in virginia and had the bills of loading signed by the captain in my pocket and in these boxes was my plate and watches and everything of value except my money which i kept by itself in a private drawer in my chest which could not be found or opened if found with splitting the chest to pieces in this condition i lay for three weeks in the ship not knowing whether i should have my husband with me or no and therefore not resolving how or in what manner to receive the honest boatswain's proposal which indeed he thought a little strange at first at the end of this time behold my husband come on board 
He looked with a dejected, angry countenance. His great heart was swelled with rage and disdain. To be dragged along with three keepers of Newgate, and put on board like a convict, when he had not so much as been brought to trial. He made loud complaints of it by his friends, for it seems he had some interest, but his friends got some check in their application, and were told he had had favor enough, and that they had received such an account of him since the last grant of his transportation, that he ought to think himself very well treated that he was not prosecuted anew. This answer quieted him at once, for he knew too much what might have happened, and what he had room to expect, and now he saw the goodness of the advice to him, which prevailed with him to accept of the offer of a voluntary transportation. And after this, his chagrin at these hell-hounds, as he called them, was a little over. He looked a little composed, began to be cheerful, and as I was telling him how glad I was to have him once more out of their hands, he took me in his arms, and acknowledged with great tenderness that I had given him the best advice possible. "'My dear,' says he, "'thou hast twice saved my life. From henceforward it shall be all employed for you, and I'll always take your advice.' The ship began now to fill. Several passengers came on board. We were embarked on no criminal account, and these had accommodations assigned to them in the great cabin and other parts of the ship, whereas we as convicts were thrust down below, I know not where. But when my husband came on board, I spoke to the boatswain, who had so early given me hints of his friendship in carrying my letter. I told him he had befriended me in many things, and I had not made any suitable return to him. And with that I put a guinea into his hand. I told him that my husband was now come on board, that though we were both under the present misfortune, yet we had been persons of a different character from the wretched crew that we came with, and desired to know of him, whether the captain might not be moved to admit us to some conveniences in the ship, for which we would make him what satisfaction he pleased, and that we would gratify him for his pains in procuring this for us. He took the guinea as I could see with great satisfaction, and assured me of his assistance. Then he told us he did not doubt but that the captain, who was one of the best-humoured gentlemen in the world, would be easily brought to accommodate us as well as we could desire, and to make me easy, told me he would go up the next tide, on purpose to speak to the captain about it. The next morning, happening to sleep a little longer than ordinary, when I got up and began to look abroad, I saw the boatswain among the men in his ordinary business. I was a little melancholy at seeing him there, and going forward to speak to him. He saw me, and came towards me, but not giving him time to speak first, I said, smiling. I doubt, sir, you have forgot us, for I see you are very busy. He returned presently. Come along with me, and you shall see. So he took me into the great cabin, and there sat a good sort of a gentlemanly man for a seaman, writing, and with a great many papers before him. Here, says the boatswain to him that was a writing, is the gentlewoman that the captain spoke to you of. And turning to me, he said, I have been so far from forgetting your business that I have been up at the captain's house, and have represented faithfully to the captain what you said relating to you being furnished with better conveniences for yourself and your husband. And the captain has sent this gentleman, who is mate of the ship, down with me on purpose to show you everything and to accommodate you fully to your content, and bid me assure you 
that you shall not be treated like what you were at first expected to be, but with the same respect as other passengers are treated. The mate then spoke to me, and, not giving me time to thank the boatswain for his kindness, confirmed what the boatswain had said, and added that it was the captain's delight to show himself kind and charitable, especially to those that were under any misfortunes, and with that he showed me several cabins built up, some in the great cabin and some partitioned off, out of the steerage, but opening into the great cabin on purpose for the accommodation of passengers, and gave me leave to choose where I would. However, I chose a cabin which opened into the steerage, in which was very good convenience, to set our chest and boxes, and a table to eat on. The mate then told me that the boatswain had given so good a character of me and my husband, as to our civil behavior, that he had orders to tell me we should eat with him, if we thought fit, during the whole voyage, on the common terms of passengers, that we may lay in some fresh provisions, if we pleased, or if not, he should lay in his usual store, and we should have share with him. This was very reviving news to me. After so many hardships and afflictions as I had gone through of late, I thanked him, and told him the captain should make his own terms with us, and asked him leave to go and tell my husband of it, who was not very well, and was not yet out of his cabin. Accordingly I went, and my husband, whose spirits were still so much sunk with the indignity, as he understood it, offered him that he was scarce yet himself, was so revived with the account that I gave him of the reception we were like to have in the ship, that he was quite another man, and new vigor and courage appeared in his very countenance. So true is it that the greatest of spirits, when overwhelmed by their afflictions, are subject to the greatest dejections, and are the most apt to despair and give themselves up. After some little pause to recover himself, my husband came up with me, and gave the mate thanks for his kindness which he had expressed to us, and sent suitable acknowledgment by him to the captain, offering to pay him by advance whatever he demanded for our passage and for the conveniences he had helped us to. The mate told him that the captain would be on board in the afternoon, and that he would leave all that till he came. Accordingly, in the afternoon the captain came, and we found him the same courteous, obliging man that the boatswain had represented him to be. And he was so well pleased with my husband's conversation, that, in short, he would not let us keep the cabin we had chosen, but gave us one that, as I said before, opened into the great cabin. Nor were his conditions exorbitant, or the man craving and eager to make a prey of us. But for fifteen guineas we had our whole passage and provisions and cabin, ate at the captain's table, and were very handsomely entertained. The captain lay himself in the other part of the great cabin, having let his round house, as they call it, to a rich planter who went over with his wife and three children, who ate by themselves. He had some other ordinary passengers who quartered in the steerage, and as for our old fraternity, they were kept under the hatches while the ship lay there, and came very little on the deck. I could not refrain acquainting my governess with what had happened. It was but just that she, who was so really concerned for me, should have part in my good fortune. Besides, I wanted her assistance to supply me with several necessaries, which before I was shy of letting anybody see me have, that it might not be public. But now I had a cabin and room to set things in. I ordered abundance of good things for our comfort in the voyage, as brandy, sugar, lemons, etc., to make punch and treat our benefactor 
the captain, an abundance of things for eating and drinking in the voyage, also a larger bed, and bedding proportioned to it, so that, in a word, we resolved to want for nothing in the voyage. All this while I had provided nothing for our assistance when we should come to the place and begin to call ourselves planters, and I was far from being ignorant of what was needful on that occasion, particularly all sorts of tools for the planters' work and for building, and all kinds of furniture for our dwelling, which, if to be bought in the country, must necessarily cost double the price. So I discoursed that point with my governess, and she went and waited upon the captain, and told him that she hoped ways might be found out for her two unfortunate cousins, as she called us, to obtain our freedom when we came into the country, and so entered into a discourse with him about the means and terms also, of which I shall say more in its place. And after thus sounding the captain, she let him know, though we were unhappy in the circumstances that occasioned our going, yet that we were not unfurnished to set ourselves to work in the country, and we resolved to settle and live there as planters, if we might be put in a way how to do it. The captain readily offered his assistance, told her the method of entering upon such business, and how easy, nay, how certain it was for industrious people to recover their fortunes in such a manner. Madam, says he, tis no reproach to any man in that country to have been sent over in worse circumstances than I perceive your cousins are in, provided they do but apply with diligence and good judgment to the business of that place when they come there. She then inquired of him what things it was necessary we should carry over with us, and he, like a very honest as well as knowing man, told her thus, Madam, your cousins in the first place must procure somebody to buy them as servants, in conformity to the conditions of their transportation, and then, in the name of that person, they may go about what they will. They may either purchase some plantations already begun, or they may purchase land of the government of the country, and begin where they please, and both will be done reasonably. She bespoke his favour in the first article, which he promised to her to take upon himself, and indeed faithfully performed it. And as to the rest, he promised to recommend us to such as should give us the best advice, and not to impose upon us, which was as much as could be desired. She then asked him if it would be necessary to furnish us with a stock of tools and materials for the business of planting, and he said, Yes, by all means, and then she begged his assistance in it. She told him she would furnish us with everything that was convenient, whatever it cost her. He accordingly gave her a long particular of things necessary for a planter, which, by his account, came to about fourscore, or a hundred pounds. And, in short, she went about as dexterously to buy them, as if she had been an old Virginia merchant, only that she bought, by my direction, above twice as much of everything as he had given her a list of. These she put on board in her own name, took his bills of loading for them, and endorsed those bills of loading to my husband, insuring the cargo afterwards in her own name by our order, so that we were provided for all events and for all disasters. I should have told you that my husband gave her all of his stock of a hundred eight pounds, which, as I have said, he had about him in gold to lay out thus, and I gave her a good sum besides so that I did not break into the stock which I had left in her hands at all. But after we had sorted out our whole cargo, we had yet near two hundred pounds in money, which was more than enough for our purpose. 
in this condition, very cheerful and indeed joyful at being so happily accommodated as we were. We set sail from Bugsby's Hole to Gravesend, where the ship lay about ten more days, and where the captain came on board for good and all. Here the captain offered us a civility which indeed we had no reason to expect, namely to let us go on shore and refresh ourselves upon giving our words in a solemn manner that we would not go from him, and that we would return peaceably on board again. This was such an evidence of his confidence in us that it overcame my husband, who, in a mere principle of gratitude, told him, as he could not be in any capacity to make a suitable return for such a favor, so he could not think of accepting of it, nor could he be easy that the captain should run such a risk. After some mutual civilities, I gave my husband a purse in which was eighty guineas, and he put it into the captain's hands. There, captain, says he, there's part of a pledge for our fidelity. If we deal dishonestly with you on any account, tis your own. And on this we went on shore. Indeed, the captain had assurance enough of our resolutions to go, for that having made such provision to settle there, it did not seem rational that we would choose to remain here at the expense and peril of life, for such it must have been if we had been taken again. In a word, we went all on shore with the captain and supped together at Gravesend, where we were very merry, stayed all night, lay at the house where we supped, and came all very honestly on board again with him in the morning. Here we bought ten dozen bottles of good beer, some wine, some fowls, and such things as we thought might be acceptable on board. My governess was with us all this while and went with us round into the downs, as did also the captain's wife, with whom she went back. I was never so sorrowful at parting with my own mother as I was at parting with her, and I never saw her more. We had a fair easterly wind sprung up the third day after we came to the Downs, and we sailed from thence the 10th of April. Nor did we touch any more at any place till, being driven on the coast of Ireland by a very hard gale of wind, the ship came to another anchor in a little bay near the mouth of a river, whose name I remember not, but they said the river came down from Limerick, and that it was the largest river in Ireland. Here, being detained by bad weather for some time, the captain, who continued the same kind, good-humoured man as at first, took us to on shore with him again. He did it now in kindness to my husband, indeed, who bore the sea very ill and was very sick especially when it blew so hard. Here we bought in again a store of fresh provisions, especially beef, pork, mutton, and fowls, and the captain stayed to pickle up five or six barrels of beef to lengthen out the ship's store. We were here not above five days when the weather turned mild, and a fair wind we set sail again, and in two and forty days came safe to the coast of Virginia. When we drew near to the shore, the captain called me to him, and told me that he found by my discourse I had some relations in the place, and that I had been there before, and so he supposed I understood the custom in their disposing the convict prisoners when they arrived. I told him I did not, and that as to what relations I had in the place, he might be sure I would make myself known to none of them while I was in the circumstances of a prisoner, and that as to the rest, we left ourselves entirely to him to assist us, 
as he was pleased to promise us he would do. He told me I must get somebody in the place to come and buy us as servants. I told him we should do as he should direct, so he brought a planter to treat with him, as it were, for the purchase of these two servants, my husband and me, and there we were formally sold to him and went ashore with him. The captain went with us and carried us to a certain house. Whether it was to be called a tavern or not, I know not, but we had a bowl of punch there made of rum, etc., and were very merry. After some time the planter gave us a certificate of discharge and an acknowledgment of having served him faithfully, and we were free from him the next morning to go whither we would. For this piece of service the captain demanded of us six thousand weight of tobacco, which he said he was accountable for to his freighter, and which we immediately bought for him and made him a present of twenty guineas besides, with which he was abundantly satisfied. It is not proper to enter here into the particulars of what part of the colony of Virginia we settled in, for diverse reasons. It may suffice to mention that we went into the great river Potomac, the ship being bound thither, and there we intended to have settled first, though afterwards we altered our minds. The first thing I did of moment, after having gotten all our goods on shore, and placed them in a storehouse or warehouse, which, with a lodging, we hired at the small place or village where we landed. I say, the first thing was to inquire after my mother and after my brother, that fatal person whom I married as a husband, as I have related at large. A little inquiry furnished me with information that Mrs., that is, my mother, was dead, that my brother or husband was alive, which I confess I was not very glad to hear. But which was worse, I found, he was removed from the plantation where he lived formerly, and where I lived with him, and lived with one of his sons in a plantation just by the place where we landed, and where we had hired a warehouse. I was a little surprised at first, but as I ventured to satisfy myself that he could not know me, I was not only perfectly easy, but had a great mind to see him, if it was possible to so do without his seeing me. In order to do that, I found up by inquiry the plantation where he lived, and with a woman of that place whom I got to help me, like what we call a chairwoman. I rambled about towards the place as if I had only a mind to see the country and look about me. At last I came so near that I saw the dwelling-house. I asked the woman whose plantation that was. She said it belonged to such a man, and looking out a little to her right hands, there says she is the gentleman that owns the plantation and his father with him what are their christian names said i i know not says she what the old gentleman's name is but the son's name is humphrey and i believe says she the father's is so too you may guess if you can what a confused mixture of joy and fright possessed my thoughts upon this occasion for i immediately knew that this was nobody else but my own son by that father she showed me, who was my own brother. I had no mask, but I ruffled my hood so about my face that I depended upon it that after above twenty years' absence, and withal not expecting anything of me in that part of the world, he would not be able to know anything of me. But I need not have used all that caution, for the old gentleman was grown dim-sighted by some distemper which had fallen upon his eyes and could but just see well enough to walk about, and not run against a tree or into a ditch. 
The woman that was with me had told me that by a mere accident, knowing nothing of what importance it was to me. As they drew near to us, I said, Does he know you, Mrs. Owen? So they called the woman. Yes, said she. If he hears me speak, he will know me. But he can't see well enough to know me or anybody else. And so she told me the story of his sight, as I have related. This made me secure, and so I threw open my hoods again and let them pass by me. It was a wretched thing for a mother thus to see her own son, a handsome, comely young gentleman in flourishing circumstances, and durst not make herself known to him, and durst not take any notice of him. Let any mother of children that reads this consider it, and but think with what anguish of mind I restrained myself, what yearnings of soul I had in me to embrace him and weep over him, and how I thought all my entrails turned within me, that my very bowels moved, and I knew not what to do, as I know now, not how to express those agonies. When he went from me, I stood gazing and trembling and looking after him as long as I could see him, then sitting down to rest me, but turned from her and lying on my face, wept and kissed the ground that he had set his foot upon. I could not conceal my disorder so much from the woman, but that she perceived it and thought I was not well, which I was obliged to pretend was true upon which she pressed me to rise, the ground being damp and dangerous, which I did accordingly, and walked away. As I was going back again, and still talking of this gentleman and his son, a new occasion of melancholy offered itself thus. The woman began, as if she would tell me a story to divert me. There goes, says she, a very odd tale among the neighbors where this gentleman formerly live. What was that? said I. Why, she says, that old gentleman going to England when he was a young man fell in love with a young lady there, one of the finest women that ever was seen, and married her, and brought her over hither to his mother who was then living. He lived here several years with her, continued she, and had several children by her, of which the young gentleman that was with him now was one. But after some time the old gentlewoman, his mother, talked to her of something relating to herself when she was in England, and of her circumstances in England, which were bad enough. The daughter-in-law began to be very much surprised and uneasy, and, in short, examining further into things, it appeared past all contradiction that the old gentlewoman was her own mother, and that, consequently, that son was his wife's own brother, which struck the whole family with horror, and put them into such confusion that it had almost ruined them all. The young woman would not live with him. The son, her brother, and husband, for a time went distracted, and at last the young woman went away to England, and has never been heard of since. It is easy to believe that I was strangely affected with this story, but it is impossible to describe the nature of my disturbance. I seemed astonished at the story, and asked her a thousand questions about the particulars, which I found she was thoroughly acquainted with. At last I began to inquire into the circumstances of the family, how the old gentlewoman, I mean my mother, died, and how she left what she had, for my mother had promised me very solemnly that when she died she would do something for me, and leave it so, as that, if I was living, I should one way or other come at it, without its being in the power of her son, 
my brother and husband to prevent it. She told me she did not know exactly how it was ordered, but she had been told that my mother had left a sum of money, and had tied her plantation for the payment of it, to be made good to the daughter, if ever she could be heard of, either in England or elsewhere, and that the trust was left with this son, who was the person that we saw with his father. This was news too good for me to make light of, and you may be sure, filled my heart with a thousand thoughts what course I should take, how and when, and in what manner I should make myself known, or whether I should ever make myself known or not. End of section 22. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain.